When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. Today, Caroline and I are thrilled to talk to Christine Coulson, who published a book called Metropolitan Stories about some of the objects in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, where Christine has worked as a senior curator for over 25 years. This book tells the stories of objects that contain their own stories and histories. And Christine says in this interview, if you look really closely, if you stay in front of a painting or a work of art or a piece of furniture and just pay attention, its history will reveal itself to you. We hope you'll enjoy these 35 questions with Christine Coulson, the author of Metropolitan Stories, and that you'll like the show on the various social media channels on Instagram, YouTube, etc. Thank you so much for listening, and Carolyn and I are thrilled to present this conversation with Christine Coulson to you today. So hello, Christine Coulson. We're happy to have you on the there. Hi, Christine. How are you? Very well. So it's really a pleasure to have you and um, to have you on Zoom today. And I've greatly enjoyed as much as I've been able to read of Metropolitan Stories. So thank you, first of all, for opening this uh, vast, immense treasure chest in a totally different way. I'd never actually thought about any of the artworks in that building in the way you just, you make them come to life. Really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, uh, Chris, that your your novel, Metropolitan Stories, is really one of my favorite things I've read in a very long time. I'm a huge fan of yours and I'm thrilled you can be here. And it's a special day for the Proust questionnaire because today's Proust's birthday. So ah. that's... Yeah, we didn't plan anything otherwise. And as we're always trying to remind our, our guests or would-be guests, the Proust questionnaire really has very little, if anything, to do with Proust. It's just these 35 questions that he made famous by answering them twice 
uh, when he was a young man at the turn of the last century. So I think uh, without further ado, thank you for being here. And uh, Uli, are you going to kick us off today? Yes. And the first question, Christine, is what is your idea of perfect happiness? Perfect happiness. You know, I think I'm quite radical in that I very much believe in happiness. Like I'm, I'm like a super happy person and I find that very easily. Um, but I'd say my like happiest place is like in the mode of writing. I'm also a writer who doesn't mind writing, who doesn't find pain in the process. And, um, I like for me, perfect happiness is arriving at like the perfectly pruned sentence. Mm -hmm. Like when you have this thing and it's unwieldy and then you start chopping and editing and you find just the perfect combination of noun, verb, adjective, and it just sings. And to me, that is a kind of, I don't know, there's a, there's a real palpable feeling that comes from that, that I have to believe is, is, happiness that's that's one that often and you have to earn it but when it happens and the process of doing it I actually it's like it's almost like I don't know it's like doing the crossword puzzle or something you know when <laughs> I was writing for the Met my last um assignment for the Met but I was writing the labels for the new um British galleries which are devoted to 400 years of British art and design and I had 75 words to describe each object and 200 words to describe each century. Oh God. And that so, I mean, a lot went on from <laughs> 1500 to 1900. So I would get my 200 words and you have to, I mean, it has to be so tight and you have to use each word has to work for you. And there's nothing more satisfying than that kind of challenge. Yeah. Now, it's nice also to hear that described as a process that for you isn't painful. I think a lot of the writers that I know, including myself, um, enjoy those good moments when it all comes together, but it's all fraught with so much pain and torture and gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands. Uh, it's really, really fun to talk with a writer who enjoys the, the process. And I will say also, just as another kind of plug for Metropolitan Stories, uh, that not only is it, as Uli was saying at the beginning, uh, uh, just a, a fascinating look at this amazing wonder chest of, of the Metropolitan Museum, but also it's so beautifully written. The sentences are each a joy. So you impart that pleasure to your readers for sure. And it's nice to know that you're getting some pleasure while you're, uh, while you're producing that prose. Well, it's interesting too, because sometimes I feel like I'm not quite legit because I don't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 you know, while there is certainly there's struggle and there's challenge and there's the, the, but I like all that. And so I sort of feel like because I'm not fraught enough, yeah. um, it's like you're not supposed to be getting so much pleasure. Oh, God. Yeah, don't question it. Don't, yeah, don't bring that jinx on yourself. Let's, let's preserve you in that, that, uh, that idyllic state. Um, uh, turning to a quite different kind of question, what is your greatest fear? Oh, my greatest fear is has to miss my children. I mean, something happening to them, yes, but um, almost more so um, something happening to me. Mm. So they would live without me. 
mm-hmm. which is probably a little narcissistic, but it's also, it's like um, Donna Tart when she wrote The Goldfinch, you know, I read that book and it's such a complicated thing. Um, and I don't think it's flawless, but what I really grabbed onto was this idea of this mother raising this son and what happens to the son when she's removed from his life. And yeah. so I read that book as like, oh my God, this is what's going to happen if something happens to me. Um, and so I have a real, um, uh, it, I think it's probably an irrational feel. They're, they're 13 years old now and they're probably just fine. But that sense of um, being a part of their life and then being pulled away from it, I think it um, really bothers me. Mm-hmm. I'm happiest when the four of us are on a plane together. <laughs> Oh, so you all go down. <laughs> we all go down. We all go down. But um, if it's just me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my parents used to sometimes, they traveled a lot when my brother and I were growing up, and they would sometimes say to us, we've decided to take separate flights in case something happens. And whereas my brother and I wouldn't have been thinking before about the possibility of a plane crash, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it left us then kind of terror stricken twice. Like, okay, mom's taking off right now. Okay, dad's flying to London. <laughs> It somehow made it worse. So maybe um, I don't. Have you voiced that um, that that idea of happiness to your kids? Do they know that you like being on a plane with them? I think they can probably tell. Right. I'm much more relaxed if it's just the four of us. <laughs> Christine, what is the trade you're most deploying yourself? Well, probably just what I described: um, my need for control, total, <laughs> complete control. I mean, in in everything. Um, So, you know, having a dinner party or or writing. I mean, I have to, I'm so ritualistic. I eat the same breakfast in the same place. When I'm writing, I eat, you know, I eat the same breakfast, same place. I walk the same blocks. I sit in the same chair. I do everything in the most rigorous way. Really disciplined. I write for the same amount of hours. Mm. Um, I do not get up. There are no coffee breaks. There are no breaks for anything. Um, And that to me is how it comes is kind of to remove every single variable Mm. so that I can exist in my head so that I like it. To me, it's almost, and it's almost superstitious that the, like the imagination that it takes to write what I want to write can only exist in like this perfect equilibrium. (laughs) Yeah. And so I have to remove everything and then it comes and it happens every time. So when right. you have like successful neuroses, it's sort of self-perpetuating. I keep, keep them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, uh, the poet Rilke said when uh, Lou Andrea Salome said he made tri-psychoanalysis and he did meet Freud once and he said, I know it would probably clear out all my demons, but it will scare all the angels too. Exactly. So he said he would lose his inspiration. What is the trait you most deplore in others? Oh, cruelty. <laughs> cruelty. And particularly violence. Any kind of... I have no um, no threshold for any kind of um, brutality and violence, even in any direction. Yeah. And I think that takes a lot of forms. I mean, I think we've, we're, we're experiencing that now in a way... Um, that's very visceral, but I think um, we're also starting to understand how um, cruelty has existed in a much um, much more subtle way um, through race in this country um, for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that we all have a lot of learning to do about that. 
um, and and how that kind of more subtle um, and I don't know that more subtle and invasive and and pre-programmed and systematic kind of cruelty is almost worse than um, mm -hmm. a real physical violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's more sinister. Yeah. Yeah, because it's you know it, it often takes longer to um, to discern right yeah. that if, if it's kind of subtle and pernicious. Um, it's harder to be on guard against it. It's harder to challenge it, I guess. Um, but it, but and it has equal intention often yeah. Yeah. as someone, you know, hurting someone. Right. Which living person do you most admire? Most admire. Um, you know who I really admire, and uh, more than ever, um, is Steve Martin. Oh. <laughs> We haven't had that answer yet, but what a great one. I know, I'm sure people pick someone like Obama or someone, but um, to me, he's just got everything. Like his whole understanding of um, who he is, what he can do, like he understands his superpowers in a way that I really admire. Um, he knows he can write, he knows he can make people laugh, but then he also stretches and he, you know, he has these quieter passions like art collecting that I really res respect him for. Um, he seems to me someone, I've never met him. Um, I've been in the same room with him because he comes to the Met all the time. Um, but he seems to be someone who really pursues both what he knows how to do and what he's curious about in kind of equal measure and and just, rings the best out of life. He's someone who's done, I don't know, the, what he's done with his celebrity, with real integrity, not necessarily saving the world, but um, being true to himself. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's I a, watched that's... his masterclass during um, quarantine. Oh, what was the, was it about the banjo? About, what was it about? No, it was about um, writing comedy. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, I love his passion for words and his, his understanding of structure and how, and how that works, even in a simple sentence. And, and I just love, he's a real word guy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But he's also a closet art guy. I mean, he's got one of the greatest art collections in the world. He has a great collection of Australian Aboriginal art. Yes. He has a really fantastic collection that was on view this last year, actually, at Gagosian. It's a really beautiful collection. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. He's a little, he's kind of a, like, yeah. quiet renaissance man. Right. Yeah. I hope he listens to this, because I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send it to him. We'll be sure to send it to send him. Send him my book or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Always a good reason to, uh, to send him your book. What is your greatest extravagance? Um, on a different level than Steve Martin, um, buying art. Okay. I, I am a, um, I, I believe that, um, being a collector is a thing like you, it's, it's something that's hardwired in you. Mm. It's an itch that needs to be scratched. It's quite addictive. And, um, luckily I'm married to someone who shares it. Um, we don't necessarily collect the same things, but we understand the passion for it. Um, the, the, both the, the connection to beauty or a connection to um, objects, to things, but then also the desire to possess them. Mm -hmm. um, I have that in spades. 
And I think because I work at the museum, though, it 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 means I don't want to own a Rembrandt. I don't want to like I actually don't want to um, own like a, a a print of a Durer. I don't want a kind of watered down version of a great master's work of art. So I like to collect like the best thing by an artist you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm really interested in that. And I have very, very fast, very re- visceral responses to works of art. So when I want them, I want them badly. And so I buy a lot. Yeah. Have you bought anything since uh, lockdown began? I just, I mean, literally five minutes ago, DHL came to the door. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, lockdown has been very uh, fruitful for the collection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a blessing and a curse. Can you tell us what it was that just arrived, or do you uh, a Swedish painting from London? Um, okay. And uh, so it's it's funny because sometimes the DHL guy pulls up, you know, and we're in the country, and um, so he pulls up, and my husband and I are kind of looking at one another, like, "Is that you or me?" <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's also it's also great to hear because it's been so hard for artists. I think. Um, that actually that's still, that's still that you're collecting now because in this time. Well, think- one of the things that's been amazing during um, the pandemic is this artist support pledge. Yeah. Where artists agree to um, sell their work at a certain price. And then um, once they, uh, I think it's 250 pounds in London. And then once they reach a thousand pounds, they commit to buying a work of art from another artist. Oh, and so it's created this dynamic. Someone started it in the first week. And so I think it's been nice. A lot of the artists that we collect and that I know well from over the years, um, they've lost their day jobs. They don't, you know, they're not teaching and they're not do, you know, they don't have the streams of income that they normally would. So it has been nice to collect Support that it. way. Um, and it has felt like a small gesture to be able to do something. Christine, what's your current state of mind? You know, Despite um, what's going on in the world, I'm, I think I'm rare in being, I'm very hopeful at the moment. Um, mainly because I think that um, things need to be broken before they can be fixed in some ways. Um, that we're at this moment where it just seems so broken that it seems now possible to reimagine it. Hmm. Um, I think the almost the the extreme constraint of our dreadful president has actually just brought us to a point where it's like everything's intolerable. So we just, and I hope that manifests itself in November, but um, so that now something else emerges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think often you have to reach that breaking point. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like when you're writing and um, one of the best times I had in writing, I was um, going to the American Academy in Rome for a month. I had a sabbatical from the museum for a year. And in the month of November during that year, I was going to the American Academy in Rome. And just before that, my editor had read my most of my manuscript. There were only a couple of chapters left, but... Um, and she just asked the most brutal questions of it. I mean, it was harsh, harsh, harsh in the best possible way. Yeah. And so I went to Rome and cloistered myself in this essentially like this dorm room 
for a month to kind of address her questions, which mainly involved like throwing out most of what I'd written, a lot of what I wrote. And my legendary, uh, I quote this to her all the time and she's mortified by it, but it was the best edit I've ever had. And it should be like my screensaver. She wrote in the margin, you must resist writing these extraordinarily beautiful passages that take us nowhere. Oh. <laughs> and she was right, because I, would, I can write about the museum for days. I mean, I can take you through the Great Hall in 10 pages, 50 pages, whatever you want. And so it's almost too easy. And, and so to me, what was so satisfying about that is she, A, pointed to the problem, in a kind of flashlight kind of way. Um, but then my work was to actually have the courage to throw all those pages out and find that pruning that I makes me so happy in their absence. Yeah, yeah. Well, the result, it, it obviously worked, so we have no idea what ended up on the cutting. I have a whole uh, word file of <laughs> the missing pages. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? Oh, I, uh, this will be controversial, but I'll say it, especially because um, I'm here. Um, nature, reverie in nature. <laughs> so fucking over nature. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not a Rousseau fan. I'm just romanticism. Uh, I just I'm a I'm an urban creature. And I am like living the life of a country mouse. And I really struggle with that. I know it's beautiful. And I know it's a miracle. Blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> I love that, Christine, that you know it's beautiful. Like you've read about it. Exactly. Someone pointed that out to you. I'm glad someone pointed that out to you. So that's actually just, different from you. I just don't. Um, <laughs> it's like you just, all you can do is look at it. And it comes at you. And you say, that's amazing. Um, I like a kind of, you know, I like a bit of wrestling. I like a little hustle and bustle. It's interesting what you're saying is that the entire tradition is a kind of glorification, romanticization of nature. Behind it, the realization that nature is utterly indifferent. And there's nothing... Well, it's going to happen with or without you. And maybe that's like what I don't like about it. Right. Is that... It's, you know, and that's amazing. It can be comforting for a lot of people that that cycle of nature is always there. But like, I want something that distinctly doesn't happen automatically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like something that can be sort of, it can be bold, it can be delightful, it can be awful, it can be completely artificial, but it's it's like thrown at you with the, it's, it's expression. So something that's made by human expression. So something that, whether that's words or whether that's art, but um, something that comes from, you know, talent and, and inspiration and, you know, human hands. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what gets my juices going much more than like a beautiful view ever would. Yeah. There's a passage I just came across in Proust the other day in volume five, where He's imagining, the narrator Marcel is imagining how he'd like to go to Venice one day. And he's thinking about how amazing it will be to see the city. And then he remembers that a sculptor he really admires has told him that basically the best thing about Venice are paintings of Venice. And it's just <laughs> so much better to look at certain paintings of Venice than to actually go to the city. And um, yeah, and I think and the, what Bruce, the word that he uses uh, somewhere in that kind of extended 
meditation on art versus nature is um, individuality. That, you know, you this expression, as you say, that you've got, you know, it's, well, Monet is giving you a sunset or Montaigne is giving you yeah, yeah. a scene in amphitheater or whatever it is, but that there's an individual kind of human spirit that's yeah. mediating between you and whatever natural world is finding its way in some way into to the, what's represented. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. you also just get hardwired as a New Yorker to kind of be in re- reception mode all the time and be like, and that cycle of, of responding. Um, and so when you're in nature, it's just so one way. And I just, <laughs> I can't bear it. <laughs> I remember one of your posts on Instagram from the early days of the quarantine. And I forget even which image it was from the Met, but it was a picture of some artwork in the Met. And your caption said, the art is there waiting for us. Oh, and I just thought, because I'm in the country too, and I thought, oh my God, there's a whole museum sitting empty that we could all just be in right now looking at it. But it's also comforting to think that the art is waiting for us. So the art is certainly waiting for you while you're exiled to me. It is, it, and I, I believe um, it misses me terribly. um on what occasion do you lie i lie to my children probably all the time but um uh you know i think where women are most compelled to lie is um in the uh the school mom context you know can you help with the christmas fair <laughs> I'm never afraid to lie about that. Um, so I do a lot of lying in the, in the in that context. Um, and I, you know, I'm not afraid of um, protecting my beloved museum with a with a, some gentle fiction about what stories were true and what were not, and <laughs> what whose whose character was based on which person. Um, no need. No need. No need. <laughs> Christine, what do you most dislike about your appearance? Oh, I'd like to be taller. Okay. I'm I'm classically known for wearing sky high um, tall shoes, and if you could put me on a machine and stretch me and say we'll just give you four more inches, I'm not short, um, but I just think there's incredible power in being um, tall, mm-hmm. and so I I just somehow constructed that instead of being that, but. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I wouldn't have I wouldn't have anticipated that because I think of you on these towering shoes all the time. And right, so, I know. Well, cuz when you see me on 511. <laughs> right. That's that's what I am in flats. And fully is we're what 6766? 66 or something. But actually I think I was I was reading something about Oscar Wilde yesterday. I'm writing something in there that said he described somebody in vertiginous heels. Yes. Which I really liked this kind of idea. So, okay. <laughs> Real risk taking. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. Vertiginous heels. Yeah, at least that what you dislike about your appearance is something that can be uh, addressed with fabulous shoes. I know, I'm lucky that way. That is lucky. That's right. That is lucky. Um, which living person do you most despise? The cop who was leaning on George Floyd's neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, um, I can't even process that. I know. I know. Um, I just, I can't, um, I, I, yeah, I, I could, I could well up right now. I find that so, so yeah. yeah. No, 
devastating. It can take the country and the world a long time to, and probably never to really grasp what that what that is, what that means to us. Yeah. Do I, do I witness that? Yeah. 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 Um, what is the quality? How long it took. I think uh, also how long it took. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like watching an accident. Right. Um, I think the the slow, deliberate nature of it was particularly a, a kind of cruelty that I find um, almost incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the quality you most like in a man? Generosity. And I think that takes a lot of forms. I mean, I think that means being um, interested in other people, um, sort of generous in spirit. Um, generous uh, with their own achievements and curious about other people. I just find that more and more rare. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of years sitting next to a lot of men at the Metropolitan Museum <laughs> at a lot of dinners. And I can't say generosity was a very common <laughs> trait. <laughs> Maybe generosity to the museum. Um, but that kind of generosity of spirit, which often... Um, it's, I find that in um, being generous with your time in listening and being, um, being funny, I think, is generous. Allowing you to be funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Allowing women to be funny, too, and, like, t- taking that on. I think there's a, um, that's, a, that's a generosity of spirit that um, I really love. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is the quality you most like in a woman? Strength. Mm-hmm. Bravery. The bravery, the bravery to be strong, because I think that's still um, that's still something we need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and with that strength, I don't know. I think a lot of women don't feel the um, the privilege to ima- to to access their own imagination, and they're 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 stuck in paradigms that are so useless. Um, and so I think you, it demands bravery to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're in New York, so we have a lot of, we know a lot of people like that. It's rare, but I think women as a whole haven't gotten over that. I really like this one, you, how you just said it, to be stuck in paradigms that are useless. Um, and of course, it's hard because they're also comforting or stable or familiar. Well, and they come from our own making. Yeah. 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 And we usually say, Caroline always points this out, we take the questions that were posed in 1895, they're very gendered, probably don't apply today anymore. We wouldn't ask those, we would not create such questions today about, um, so it's... Right, but then we have like Kim Kardashian in the world. (laughs) And so (laughs) maybe we should ask it, like, you know, how she uses that power as a woman in the world. Um, No, I think that's right, because I think... I think the discussion, the discussions that we're having now about racism also will need to be joined by more discussions about sexism and misogyny and how pervasive that is. And I think that, yeah, like Uli and I, our, our kind of politics and our view of, you know, peep entities all along the, the kind of gender scale is such that it kind of feels offensive to differentiate in the question. But I think, as you point out, we still live in a world where there are very entrenched paradigms about mm-hmm. what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man. You know, a man maybe isn't supposed to be 
traditionally generous in the way that you just described. Right. And the kind of the, the obverse of that is women aren't encouraged to sort of show their strength uh, in certain ways. So, well, and I think within the art, you know, within women writers, r- r- women artists, I mean, there's still, that still sticks right. that, you know, that expectation, the way you're read, the way you're looked at, the way your art is looked at. Um, I think there are different questions asked of women writers than they're asked of men. Right. So I think that that's, it's still around, even in that intellectual context. My students are very, um, it's very easy for them. And I, I taught Virginia Woolf and Simone de Beauvoir and a couple of things and Tony Hurston two weeks ago. And they said, do you mean women or people who identify as women? And I said, are people who identify as women? And they said, oh, okay. And then they just moved right along. Mm. They had no problem at all understanding what that meant. They said, if you go through the world identifying as a woman, you're going to be treated as a woman. And the other debate they did not think was worthwhile having. So for them, it was really important. These categories totally structure the way people are treated in the world and how they act in the world. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't anchor it anymore for them in some biological way. It was really interesting. They were so easy with it. They said, oh, okay. And then they just moved along. They didn't want to stay with that part of the conversation. I thought that was very productive, I thought. Yeah. The kind of facility. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? (laughs) you know i think when you write a book you really learn what you overuse because when you're proofreading it and going through it again and again and again other people are too um i'll say the word that was repeated the most in my book and i took a lot of them out but um i was struck by it is tender tender and swagger which actually sums up sort of the whole place. Right? The entire museum could actually be described with those two words. <laughs> in, well, in that sense, you did well to use them repeatedly. I I, you know, it's hard to come up with another word for swagger. Um, <laughs> or tender, really. So, yeah, I realized I, I repeat those all the time. Um, that is funny. What or who is the greatest love of your life? I know I'm supposed to say my husband and my children, but I'm not going to. Um, the greatest love of my life is the men. Mm-hmm. And they would agree with they would agree with that. Nothing has um, defined me, um, consumed me, affected me, uh, nourished me like that museum. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's every it's home, it's family, it's um, it, it, it's just, um, it's, it is the great love of my life in the sense that um, it, it takes the whole span of my existence and, and, and marks it. Christina, I don't know this and I should know this. When does the, do you remember the first time you went to the Met? Oh, very early on. I, I was obsessed with the, um, there's a medieval reliquary that J.P. Morgan gave the Met. Um, and it's a big, it looks like a, sort of big trophy, but in the middle of it is this piece of rock crystal. And then embedded in that rock crystal is a big molar, like a huge tooth. Um, And it was supposed to be Mary Magdalene's tooth. It was just like a, you know, (laughs) which I think is the greatest display of faith. The fact that anyone would believe that that was Mary Magdalene's tooth. Um, And there's actually a a letter in the file um, that says it's actually the tooth of a pig. Um, But, oh, I would go visit that thing. I love that thing in a way that's just, um, 
<laughs> irrational for an atheist, but I just love uh, it. Like, I think to me it was like a um like a really great crafts project, like a great school project. Right. It's just old. Um but the first time that I ever got behind the ropes was I was an intern um at the Met after college. So between college and graduate school. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I got to go through the doors and go back into the sort of gray areas of the Met and the offices and the behind the scenes stuff and in the basement. And that was like, you know, chugging the Kool-Aid, like I want in, this is it. And then these are my people and this is where I belong. So, um, so after graduate school, I went back. I'm trying to remember. Does the does the molar in Rock Crystal make an appearance in Metropolitan? Yeah, um, in Night Moves, uh, mm-hmm. Henry Radish, the guard, um, swings by, looks at the molar, and gets a toothache because you oh, know right. Henry has that, <laughs> he has that very visceral relationship with the works of art, so um, he has to move on because it makes his teeth <laughs> hurt. <laughs> um, when and where were you happiest? Oh, I can answer that almost to the minute. Um, October 28th, 2005, um, about 3.45 in Venice, getting into the gondola to go get married. Oh, you got married in Venice? I got married in Venice. And um, and I was so, I mean, this is, I, I think, um, quite rare. I was so aware in that moment that that, that that feeling was something distinctive and so powerful. And I was so absorbing it um, in a very conscious way that's, uh, I think, unusual for me and for anyone. Um, but I remember walking down that dock being like, this is the happiest I'll ever be. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Which talent would you most like to have? Uh, better at foreign languages. Okay. You know, like I've got, you know, French and Spanish and German all equally mediocre. Love to speak Italian. If there was one like pill I could take yeah. with some, you know, mild side effect that suddenly I'd just be <laughs> fluent and because I'm the person who like goes to a country and then pretends to speak the language because it's just fun. <laughs> sure. It's always more fun to do, especially in Italy. I just like to like. do it. And I think it's a sign of respect to give it a shot. Right. Um, sure. And depending on where you are, they're more or less receptive to it, but I like to give it a go. <laughs> yeah. So I have the worst trait though. I have um, pretty decent accents. And so I'll deliver some line really well. And the expectation is I can handle the answer. Right. <laughs> and so then you know all this german comes flying my way and i'm completely lost my the whole charade is over i have that in sweden where i don't speak a lick of swedish but just because of the way i look people you know i've spent my whole life in france and in french culture and before i ever open my mouth in france somebody will try speaking to me in english or german or and in sweden i don't apart from hey which is hello um I don't know any Swedish and everywhere I go, less so even ger- than in Germany, Uli. But Uli, do you get that in Scandinavia at all too, or? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that people assume that I would know something in the language. Yeah, but I do the same thing that you do. I, I just speak whatever two words I know. 
Yeah. But then like half of it, you can fake it. You can sort of, if your timing is good, like I've had whole dinner parties in, in Tel Aviv where someone said, oh my God, your Hebrew is perfect. And I was like, <laughs> like Ken. And I said, I would take Ken. And then I would just look at them and say like Ken. And then be like, wow. And I had no idea. I just laughed at the right moment. And I said my one word at the right moment. And since I said the right word, it was sort of this, this kind of gimmick. <laughs> I've had that dinner party in English. If people just sit, <laughs> if you just sit there and nod at the right time, people think you're amazing. <laughs> yeah. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? I think um, it wouldn't... Uh, it wouldn't kill me to loosen up a bit on the uh, control thing. I have no sense of adventure, none whatsoever. I have no desire to like travel to a really risky place or, and my definition of risky is like India. <laughs> I mean, like a place that's so um, steeped in a completely different set of rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I almost think if I went to India because of the, um, I get a little, I get super nervous in crowds. So not my country, um, but almost the, the the change of palette and the intensity of, of what comes at you in a place like that. Um, I'm not sure I could handle it. Um, so I, I think it would probably serve me to have a more adventurous spirit. But um, I don't know. At, at 50, I'm not sure that's going to happen. <laughs> what do you consider your greatest achievement? The book, yeah, my, my novel, yeah. Well, and you, I think I, because it took, you know, I, I thought about that book for twenty three years before I sat down to write it, and so, and it represents so much of me, um, both as a person, but also um, telling that story um, from that perspective and in that time. You know, the whole book takes place when I'm very, when I'm young, I'm in my twenties, I don't know anything. And um, it's a world that's occupied by these very larger than life characters who used to run the Met, um, who are no longer there. Um, and the and the spirit of the place was very familial and very, um, you know, very eccentric. Um, arrogant, yes, but also eccentric and, and, and quite, um, I don't know, quite small in a way. And so uh, I, the, the overwhelming thing I hear from um, colleagues who have read it is that they're just glad I wrote it down. Nice. That what, while the, the book is the book and whether they like it or not, they just like that I, I did the work to capture that time and that place and the way that it was because it inevitably it can't um, still be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of those people have changed. So um, I think... For my own sake, I was glad I did that. But it, it's also nice to hear from people who shared that experience that they um, are grateful for the words. Yeah. Well, and also, I, I, I'm glad that you talked about the fact. So you and I did a, a book talk for your book uh, um, at the 92nd Street Y a while ago. And I remember kind of seeing a little bit, a kind of a, just a glimmer of excitement go through the audience when you mentioned that you'd been thinking about the book for 23 years before you wrote it. And I think that's very inspiring to people who might have might be nursing some kind of project too, but because they're busy with their day job, because life gets in the way, uh, might not think it would be possible to do. And it's it's amazing that you did it. I mean, you 
you worked very hard at the Met. You had a number of different functions. You could have easily, from what I gather, just spent the rest of your life moving from one kind of area of the Met to another and doing that kind of work. So the idea that you were actually able to take time out and, and create this book that you've been living with for so long. is so there's, there's also that um, thing, and I think it's very real. Um, at that point, when I sat down to write it, like it had gotten to the point where I had to get it out. Like it was, you know, it existed in my head and quite happily, I didn't, um, I didn't take notes. I didn't keep journals. My favorite part of our talk, actually, when we did that talk at the 92nd Street Y, there was a point at which I said that um, somebody asked and I said, I, I didn't take any notes and I kept it in my head for 23 years. And you said, oh, just like Proust. <laughs> I like I should have just like dropped the mic and walked away right there. I should have stopped the book tour. It's like, exactly. I just but it's true. And I'm so predictable that I was just about to remind us of that again. Bruce did not take notes. He lived with that book in his head. But I think there's also this time, and I don't know if, you know, Bruce shared this, but there is a moment where, like, it's in you and you do have to write, you, you have to by, like, some force. I'm not sure I could have gone on without writing it. Like, it was so ready, which is the reason I was able to write it in a year is because it was just so, it was bubbling over. Yeah. Right. And I needed to write it. And so I think um, a lot of art comes from that same place. Yeah. If you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what or who would it be? Easy. An object in the Mets collection. <laughs> I'd be back home. I'd be brilliantly cared for. And which, which one, I mean, because that's one of the many uh, wonderful things about your book is the fact that the objects have lives and have perspectives in the story. Is there one in particular? Would you be that fauteuil? Well, well and that's the thing about, yeah, I know that that armchair I write, you know, the second chapter of the book is from the perspective of that 18th century chair. But, uh, you know, that's a bittersweet situation because that chair longs to be sat in. Right. Yeah. And so there's a little, so, so, you know, I do have this idea that um, an object landing in the Met, while it's sort of the ultimate achievement, it's also kind of this um, bittersweet thing in that um, no one will touch you ever again. Um, and that there is a kind of, um, a kind of being on display that, um, that changes the life of an object. And, um, and I, you know, I wonder sometimes how the objects themselves feel about that. It's like Walter Benjamin's concept of aura has this kind of melancholic idea that once things have been taken out of their context, which is, they were all sacred in some way, even art sort of have, had this dysfunction for us, but then it's taken out of a household, a family, a community into a museum. It's wonderful because we all have access, but it loses this aura of having mm -hmm. this deep personal embeddedness in life. Yes. He always feels there's a kind of tension because he actually, I think criticism where you're writing, someone like Benjamin would say, it restores this aura. It gives life back through the gaze of the beholder who actually endows it with another kind of life. Yes, and I think that that um, those works of art are also kind of witnesses to history. And so within, when they're in their context, all kinds of stuff is going on. And so, you know, I'm, I'm was trying to capture what that chair may have seen in those hundreds of years. Um, and, and I, 
I think when we limit the frame so much in the context of a gallery, what it sees is, you know, this parade of people, but that's not quite, you know, the reality of, of life and the texture and substance of, of what it would be in its original context. So, um, so yes, it's a mixed blessing, but a blessing I would happily um, endure for, um, it's a good, it's a nice retirement home. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Where would you most like to live? Well, you know, as we talked about, I mean, I, I'm not capable of living in anywhere but a city. Um, and I and that's it's kind of non-negotiable that I live in New York. But I do, I mean, if we're talking about kind of a real estate envy situation, I've always looked at that, um, that little apartment that's right across the street, across the square, the piazza from the Pantheon. <laughs> laundry hanging out and there's like I mean I just can't even imagine waking up every day and that's right there neighbor to the pantheon so um so New York absolutely but in my fantasy life I have that apartment across from the pantheon nice. Nice. uh what is your most treasured possession um an object yes oh, oh, God. Uh, um I think my um my engagement ring, which um, people won't be able to see on the podcast, but it's this. <laughs> wow. Um, it, I wear it on my um, index finger of my left hand, and it's a, uh, it's a very large uh, cabochon ruby. And it was made by a great friend of my husband's called James de Givenchy. And he um, is a, an, an incredible jeweler. Um, and before we had any, um, we we're really talking about getting married, but I met with James with the sense that this was the meeting I was to have about this ring. <laughs> and I decided I didn't really want to have a meeting about this ring. So I showed up and I gave him, um, there was an exhibition in 1997, I think, uh, at the Met called The Glory of Byzantium. And it has like one of the biggest catalogs we've ever published it was you know 750 pages this giant thing gorgeous thing and I just we sat down and uh, and I just pulled this thing out this massive book and it just plunked on the table and I just pushed it toward him and I said this is everything you need to know <laughs> <laughs> and he created me this amazing um Byzantine ring wow. um and it means a lot to me because of the creative spirit behind it, but also um, my husband was so proud of it and, and um, so engaged with it in a way that um, very much spoke to who he is as a person, as a collector, as a kind of person interested in um, things and beauty and history. And, um, and still to this day, when I see the curator of that exhibition, she still grabs my finger and says like, how's it doing? Because she takes full responsibility. Nice. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's all—it's like the source of all my power comes from that ring, um, and it's—you know—it's—it weighs a lot. So you get very used to having this this sort of physical connection um, to the weight of it um, in your daily movements, mm -hmm. and so I think I feel quite lost without that sensation. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? The suburbs. <laughs> what is your favorite occupation? 
I think I've been very lucky that I've had my favorite occupations in the sense that, um, you know, as an art historian who um, was destined to become a failed curator um, and knew I uh, didn't have what it took to be, I was a terrible academic, terrible. Like I was so lucky to go to graduate school in the time of theory because all you had to do is be able to write. And so you just had to have the ideas and you have to just be able to like manipulate the language. But I was a terrible researcher, completely, and this is probably why I'm writing fiction, totally uninterested in understanding whether this spoon was owned by Marie Antoinette or not by looking at some inventory. Um, so I never had that drive, but I had the passion for the objects and I had the um, I had the connection to the museum that was so almost religious. And so... Um, you know, I got that. And then I got to transition that into the second act of being a writer and, and, and making that um, kind of my next phase. Um, and, and so it's, it's been very seamless. What is your most marked characteristic? Candor. When I was at the Met, we, I used to do all these um, informational interviews, which were usually, you know, people interested in museum careers and stuff, and then like children of donors and stuff, and they would come in and they would ask me all these questions and I would be very straightforward with them about what it takes. And, how, and I was very lucky because I began my career at the Met um, first as an intern, but then as an assistant. And I was the lowest of the low. I mean, I, you know, I got coffee and I, you know, it was the pre-email world. I delivered mail. I made copies. It was very, you know, super grunt work. I, you know, did filing and I learned everything doing those jobs. So when I was very senior, that was the work that was actually informing um, what I did and the decisions I was making. And so I would usually give, um, young people's speeches about that. And then inevitably within three days, I would get um, what we called, my assistants would collect them. Um, the, I appreciate your candor, thank you note. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this very substantial collection of um, appreciate your candor um, correspondence. <laughs> what do you most value in your friends? I think um, compassion. Humor, the ability to, you know, take my candor and know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your favorite writers? Oh, my boys. Um, Fitzgerald, Cheever, Graham Greene. Um, those are the, you know, it's, uh, those are the people I read to learn how to, how to write. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's who I um, went back to again and again and again. And I had, you know, um, like affairs with Julian Barnes and Martin Amos and those boys too. But, um, but to me, if I need to be replenished, it's Fitzgerald Cheever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, that kind of magic is somehow... Um, embeds in you in a way that um, affects you in some, not, not in a direct way, can't even come close to right the way they, they do, but it's important. It's important yeah. to, um, to absorb that in some fundamental way. And I think the, the rereading things does that. 
Oh yeah. I mean, the great Gatsby, I, I could and do reread that book at least once a year. I mean, it's such a, it's a, it's a perfect book. And there's so much there and you just, and you read, you know, you read one of those perfect sentences, you know, where we started and you just think, God, I feel like I've never read that before. And it's just heaven. And so I think that kind of writing when it's that good, um, it it just rewards you again and again and again. I've been reading um, John O'Hara short stories, Mm. Um, I haven't read for a very long time, but he's extraordinary in his, just his constraints. He uses no metaphors, no similes whatsoever. And so what he can eke out of straightforward description without using that crutch, stunning. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Virginia Woolf has this really funny sentence she says about um, the Brontes. I think um, they write sentences that can last you through the Christmas holiday. <laughs> and it's <laughs> other, things, other things you read, and then the term is over, and you go home, and you're thinking, "Oh my God, my life back with the family with no nourishment." But one sentence sticks with you. And I love that a sentence could last through this desert period where being. Yeah, yeah. Out. I, really <laughs> I always feel like to write a sentence that could last through the Christmas holidays is an achievement. Totally, like quietly feeding you. Exactly. Yeah. Love that. That's good. I wish I would like to write a sentence like that, though. Like I to get Wolf saying that about the Bronte. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> she, I think, she fully knew that 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 sentence itself would last much longer. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's going to last us now through the rest of the pandemic, no matter yeah. how long exactly. that is. Exactly. <laughs> Chris, who is your hero or heroine of fiction, TV, film? Say, who is your favorite invented character? I think this is an incredibly hard question. Um, uh, certainly the favorite character I've ever written is that chair we talked about. Um, I love the chair. I love the chair. And, and, and as someone who visited, I used to visit the chair all the time. And um, so I was glad to give it life. Um, but, you know, there's another, uh, you know, one of the things when you have kids, you read them the same book over and over again. So the same way we read Fitzgerald, when you land on the great, children's books you read them again and again and again and literally in the same night you'll read the same book four times um and there was a book called something like when the babies crawled away something like that i think this woman named rathbone or i don't remember um and in it it is a story told completely in silhouette and it's about this family this families who have this picnic and they're eating pies or whatever and the babies all crawl away and the story is told very visually um, because it's all these silhouettes and you see these babies and they're all over the place and you know the children thought it was hilarious but what I loved is that all the babies kind of stick together and they're all going in one direction and in every on every single page one baby hangs upside down (laughs) no matter what everybody else is doing Possum baby. Baby is just like, she finds a place to hang upside down and just sort of see the whole thing differently. And to me, that baby is like, that's sort of how I feel. It's, I remember trying to explain this to them. Like, you know, it's good to go with the pack and you have your friends, but like, don't be afraid to like see everything a totally different way. And like, you're not abandoning them and you're still safe and whatever, but like, you should hang upside down every once in a while. <laughs> and I feel like you know that if there's anything about the 
the book that that is, it's like I was going through this process with a lot of people. The, you know, the Met has a staff of 2,200 people. But every once in a while, I would hang upside down and hear the chair talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think it's just a matter of like looking at life through a slightly different lens. Yeah. Which, which historical figure do you most identify with, a real person? I would like to identify with, um, or I aspire to identify with, Gertrude Stein. Oh. I like the idea of a kind of a creative life within creative lives. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of feeding off of people, of, of reading their manuscripts. I mean, I, I'm not Gertrude Stein, but I like that community she created. I like that sense of a salon, of, of people gathering, of people, you know, and everyone kind of um, trying and failing together and the energy that that connects with. Um, and I think that's, you know, we're lucky. We're in New York and we get that, um, we get that kind of community. That artistic community is really important to me. Um, and I think that's where, you know, when we talk about the qualities in our friends and sort of like, you know, that compassion for the work, that compassion for the effort and for the risk that's involved in that um, is is just as important as, you know, what's happening in your private life or, you know, it's, it's, I, I always admire that. And I know it's probably greatly glossed over, but that world she created was extraordinary. I mean, we say this, like I say this with all the humility, but I think we we started doing this podcast because it's so um, amazing to talk to people who are using their imagination and to actually follow the way they're doing it, which is not how Carol and I would do it. To sort of, it actually, I think this is the only way to um, sort of learn to be in the world in a more expansive way. I actually have, I don't believe that art teaches you morality or empathy, but to be around people who use their imagination in ways like the upside down baby right. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Is, is well, it, I think is, you're, you're Gertrude Steining. Yeah, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. <laughs> a little forbidding. I don't know. She always seems like in these portraits, she seems kind of stern. <laughs> yeah. No, but I like the idea that people, they trusted her. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. Uh, they trusted her to, to read the work, to respond to the work. And then they trusted her responses I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. Right. Right. Yeah. No, and it is such a nice compliment with an E to, um, to a creative life where, you know, the writing process is ultimately a solitary one. So to be able to kind of come out of your writing and be in community with people who can inspire you, who can edit you, who can criticize you, who can, push you in new directions. It's um... my most important um, people when I was writing were my readers. And I, you know, you send them pages and um, I would only, I would show, they were allowed to choose when I sent the things, but they only had 24 hours to get back to me because I couldn't take it. I couldn't Uh take the, (laughs) I couldn't take the lack. And it was usually only, you know, 10 pages or something, but um, they were so important to me to keep me going and to, give me reassurance, no matter what they thought, um, that there was something there. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're right. It's, it's a very isolated pursuit. Yeah. Who are your heroes in real life? Philippe de Montebello. Hands okay. down. Ah, okay. Former director of the Met. The Former director of the Met. Director of the Met, of the Met for um, 31 years. And um, 
I just, uh, you know, and I don't think we knew what we had when we had it other than we adored him. Um, uh, he's, we being the other people at the Met? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was an extraordinary leader and a, and a tremendous person who, um, you know, I, when I was the lowest person there and I was, you know, sitting in the room, you know, taking notes or whatever, um, I knew exactly what he wanted from me in terms of, um, standards of excellence and devotion to that place and the the sort of importance of the entire endeavor the whole mission of that place was so clear with him and it and it and he had a way of making you I mean he was so intimidating absolutely a frightening human being still is um, but he had a way of making you understand that you had a role to play within this big musical production that we were involved in every day. And I think that's an extraordinary thing. I really do. I think he was exceptional. I don't think we understood it until he wasn't there, but um, you know, I, I will always be um, grateful for that um, experience, just proximity to him. Uh, what are your favorite names? Favorite names. Um, you know, one of the things I had the most, the hardest time with, um, when you write fiction, you have to come up with names and it's really hard. Um, and I really struggled with it in the, in the book, there's a chapter about the guys who changed the light bulbs, um, in the Met. And I was just at a loss for names. So I looked at the collection website and I looked for artists that weren't on view because I thought the light bulb guys are people who you never see. And so I, they all have names of artists who are not on view. So I do love the star of that, um, of that chapter is a guy called Moody Russell, which is actually the name of an artist who's not on view <laughs> in the American collection. Um, Moody Russell. And I do love, I do have an affection for um, Henry Radish, who was the night, the guard on the night shift um, in the book. Um, but, you know, the thing, it's funny. Now I hear names everywhere. My son and I were just walking down the street and he was explaining to me about this um, style of car in which the the tires, the wheels stick out of the car. And it's called, uh, I think it's called a poke fitment. And I was like, poke fitment would be a great character. <laughs> <laughs> so now I feel like they're just sort of everywhere, you know. I've always loved the name Slim Keith, that great socialite from the- Oh yeah, it's a great name. I mean, it's a fantastic name. So I think that, you know, I don't have favorite names, except I have experience with names that have then like, they just have this eclat. Yeah, no, Slim Keith really is. I also, I love Slim Keith because she remained Slim Keith even after she was no longer slim. Like she, she, she didn't stay skinny her whole life, but like you've got the name Slim Keith and you actually don't even need to be skinny and it doesn't exactly. matter. Yeah. And like Keith is the most banal name. So I know. Slim Keith, just getting it done with Slim Keith. I mean, respect. <laughs> Slim Keith. <laughs> what is it that you most dislike? Just in general, in particular. In general. Um, I think it's... it's it's violence. Yeah. I have no, no tolerance for violence. Like I can't even watch, you know, I couldn't watch Breaking Bad, which was supposed to be the greatest show ever made. Couldn't watch it. It's too violent. Um, yeah. I just can't handle it. 
I can't handle seeing human beings um, hurt other human beings. Yeah. What I'm is not it? like a, um, you know, what's his name? Quentin Tarantino, not yeah. my thing. <laughs> what is your greatest regret? My greatest regret is, um, is another Met story. Um, there was a guard at the Met who was like the mayor of the Met. He had been there for, I think, uh, 41 years. His name is Dave. And he, um, you know, you'd see him all the time. And one morning I saw him, I was on sabbatical and I had, um, I had come through the museum and I saw him. Actually, I think I was done with sabbatical, but I had, I was walking through the museum before it was open to the public. And I was going, I always walked through um, the 18th century galleries and I saw him there and um, there was this rope and he went and he stepped right over it. And then he held it for me. He pulled the rope back and he held it for me. I said, thanks, Dave. And he said, you know, when I was young, um, I used to jump right over that rope with two feet. And he says, and I said, that's amazing. And he said, oh, I like to take care of myself. And he walked me, he would walk you places. Like he would, no matter where you were going. And often I would be like, you know, delivering my, the mail when I was young. And he, he remembered the first day I ever worked there. And so this is, you know, 24 years later and he's walking me, walked me to the elevator. And I was just about to tell him about, he's a character in the book and he is this guy who appears as this sort of occasionally just, this wise figure who's sort of truth teller. Um, and I was about to tell him, cause he asked me how the book was going and I didn't. I thought, no, I should let him read it and then he'll be surprised. And uh, that afternoon he died in the galleries uh-huh. of a heart attack. And uh, I felt like I just missed this moment to tell him like how loved he was and how, you know, if, if I had done it, I don't know, I think I would have felt a little more, I mean, his death was a shock, but maybe I would have felt like I had had a moment with him. Yeah. For that. Um, yeah. I've always regretted that. He's missed every day in that place. How would you like to die? I'd like to die in a kind of stand hallway, like just overwhelmed by beauty and just consumed by it. So like, I imagine that's where that is. I, you know, I, like think I, think it, some, I think that's called death in Venice. Yeah, well, it probably <laughs> is in Venice, right? I mean, it's like, he's eating strawberries on the beach and looking at exactly. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm in a palazzo, not the beach. I have a thing about sand. Can't control sand. So, yeah, nature again. Nature again. Damn nature again. So, yeah, no, I'm in a palazzo, you know, probably, you know, go on my way to go to sleep or something. But, yeah, <laughs> I love the idea of being so overwhelmed that, like, you can't even process it. You have to just remove yourself from it. The, the sublime, yeah. That's yeah. Like the ultimate sublime. Uh, or it's actually, I think, it's death in Venice or it's... Um, Jodie Foster in Contact or something in one of those cosmic movies where they just become part of space. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, it's like, you know, sort of you, you just yeah, you're, <laughs> um, you're absorbed in the all, yeah. yeah. Right. It's sort of the inverse, right, of the Oscar Wilde dying and complaining about the ugly wallpaper, right? <laughs> That's right. Right. I mean, that would be a different, I mean, that would be like, you know, the worst death. That's, see, that would happen in the suburbs. 
<laughs> That's where the ugly wallpaper is. <laughs> but it could not happen in nature. Nature doesn't that going for it. <laughs> yeah, I think Oscar Wilde felt like he, he loved France, but he still felt he was exiled to the proverbial suburbs. When he had to leave England after the trial and after his imprisonment, I think you're right. He, he didn't die of beauty. Yeah. No, it was the squalor of that hotel. Wallpaper, right. Mm. Um, what is your motto? My motto is a motto um, that I stole um, unabashedly. Um, it's a, it's Merce Cunningham, and it used to be. Well, I'm sure it still is on the on the wall of. Um, there's a great curator of performance art at the Met called Limor Tomer, and she has this on her wall. And um, to me, it has become my motto, which is. Um, the only way to do it is to do it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I think that can actually propel you very often, like at a moment of just hesitation or whatever. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I use it on my sons all the time about like taking the garbage out or whatever. <laughs> but it's also this thing of like, you can't conceive of it until you do it. And so what you're trying for, you don't even know until you do it. Um, and so I think in writing, you know, you just got to start typing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Say it again, the motto. I'm gonna... The only way to do it is to do it. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's so much better than like, it's not gonna write itself, which I sometimes say to myself, <laughs> <laughs> looking at the blank page on my computer screen. No, the only way to do it is to do it. But it's like you've imagined it, like, well, what if they did this? And what if it was, you know, what? and you can imagine in the world of dance, you know, it's just like, well, what if they were flying across the stage or whatever? It's just like, well, we can't do that. Like, because so much the answer in the world that comes back at you is you can't do that. You know, you can't have the chair talk, you know, like yeah. whatever you're imagining, you know, what usually you feel is the is the negative, like, well, you know, there's a reason no one's done that before, you know, and so you do get land to this point where the only way to do it is to do it is to just, well, let me show you how it could be done. Right. Let me show you what that would look like. And I think that that's, it's so, um, it's kind of lofty, but pragmatic. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think well, I'm, I'm going to throw that one away. That's really... That's wonderful. Okay, we've added one question to this questionnaire, which wasn't on the original. Who would you most like to hear answer the questions of this questionnaire on this podcast? And it would ideally be in a, a person who's alive because we'd like maybe potentially to be able to interview that person. Steve Martin. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yes. He'd be a great person. He'd be a fantastic yeah. guest. Yeah. Yeah, why not? We'll why not? send him We'll send him the audio file of your interview and we'll say, on the strength of Christine Coulson's <laughs> recommendation, you've come to our attention. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you've come to our attention. <laughs> you've come to our attention. That's great. We understand well, you're good with words. <laughs> but Caroline kind of preempted it because I really wanted you to recommend an armchair. From the oh, yeah. <laughs> like I really wanted, I really wanted thirty-five questions for this armchair. God, we could do it. The only <laughs> oh. way to do it is to do it. Oh my God, let's 
let's do it. I mean, Uli and I have talked about the fact that we have we have so much fun with the people we interview. And at the end of it, there is a kind of a feeling like you know the person better, but then what do you do with that? Because then we're all just back in lockdown again. Maybe <laughs> we could maybe we could revisit this questionnaire, you know, a year from now, where you know, if you're kind of nostalgic for your chair, we could just have you do the 35 questions as that chair. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, also, that Steve Martin does not preclude that conversation. That's right. But also <laughs> what you said earlier, how much writing goes into the book, and then your editor said, throw out everything that doesn't advance you. So there's a lot of research that goes into a very small chapter. There's an enormous amount of knowledge that is, becomes a half a sentence. So I think yeah. it would be fun for you to answer all the other questions. That, well, it's like, it's backstory. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I mean, you can't... Um, you know, everyone always asks who the people in the book are, you know, trying to tie them to real people. And the truth is, you know, they're, they they often start with the traits of a real person, but then you have to you have to possess them. Like you actually have to give them a backstory so that they become characters because I can't answer the questions that I need to answer with the real people. So you've got to make some stuff up. And so you you wind up doing that, giving them that so that you get the right voice and the you know I did a whole um chapter that is clearly um based on the spirit of Philippe de Montebello um but where that goes you know I can tell you I can assure you I did not have conversations like that with Philippe de Montebello so it has to become its own thing you have to be able to um kind of capture someone else's perspective and think about how they would answer questions like this in order to write dialogue for them in order to um understand their point of view right. yeah i mean i want to say to our listeners you know we we will release this um we will undoubtedly still be in some kind of lockdown around the world but your book metropolitan stories i think is a wonderful book to read right now to let all these works come to life that we can visit right now so i think a lot of people are really really deprived of this kind of experience. So your book is a really incredible book, I think, especially at this time when you can't see the works themselves to actually just spend time with them because you bring them to life in such a, in such a beautiful Well, and a lot of it um, takes place when no one else is around. So I think um, it's a lot about that side of the museum that people don't see. So, and that that life that exists there. And, and sadly, even that life has been um, shut down at the museum, but that idea and, and thinking about um, those objects in that building right now and what they're experiencing. Um, but then I, I, you know, take a very broad view of that. I mean, those objects have survived so much um, mm -hmm. in the course of their existence, you know, and, and I talk a little bit about that, about this idea of um, survival and what that means. And so to them, this is probably like a blip, <laughs> you know, Okay. You think of what they've been through and what they've seen and witnessed. And, you know, um, this is probably a little disturbing because it kind of reminds them of storage a little bit, which to me, in my mind, like the worst kind of purgatory for a work of art is storage. Um, yeah. It could be nothing more um, frightening because you don't know if you're getting out of storage, you know, how long you'll be in storage. Um, nothing good comes from storage. So right now might have, they might be having some flashbacks to storage because there's no one around but I was wondering because did you read um uh the hair with the amber eyes the Edmund de Wall book yeah 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 which is sort of one of those books that gives an object this whole yes history like and it's about survival and sort of living through this catastrophe 
and very trauma. much so. Yeah. Yep. Quite beautiful. I, I love that book actually. Yeah. Oh, let's. We should invite him too, Uli. That's a good idea. Wonderful man, really a wonderful man. Yeah, he would be a great. He would be a great person. I, I, I think that is actually that book and your book. It also opens up the world of art, which can look, as you said, intimidating, arrogant, this kind of, you know, fortress. Um, but I think to me, come there's life in these objects. I think yes, and I think the idea that um, I think a lot of people feel when they go to the Met that they they don't know what they're supposed to know to order to understand it, yeah. and I think. Um, I hope that people feel a little liberated from that, that you, you actually don't need to know anything. The object tells you what you need to know. You just, you need to be able to um, slow down and actually look. Um, and in the looking, you'll find everything you need to know. Um, but I think people feel like everybody else around them knows what they're doing except for them. There's that vibe in museums and then everyone's doing the kind of label reading shuffle. Um, and so I think, um, I hope that the the way that I talk about works of art actually allows people to just not worry about that so much mm-hmm. um, and, and have a much more quiet and, um, you know, my advice always to people is to go to the Met, um, walk through the galleries, just wander through and find something that stops them in their tracks and then look at that thing for 15 minutes um, which is a long time to look at a work of art. You know, the average person looks at it like for six seconds and then leave. It's the most important thing they can do. And like that Virginia Woolf sentence, that'll stay with you through Christmas. <laughs> that object, that process of of looking that deeply and then walking away and not allowing anything else to clutter that, um, I th- you'll never lose that object. It will stay with you, partially because you selected it but also then you took the time to have an experience with it and then you just didn't let anything else come into it. Mm. Um, I think it can be very powerful. And then I think you kind of own that thing. Right. But it's a nice approach to say, allow an object to also select you. Right. Stop you in your tracks while you think yeah. you have to do this, you have to do this. You say, if you if the second thing you see you like, that means it, it speaks to you, let right. it speak to you. And it's not because it's important. It's not because it was, you know, the, the gallery that has that chair in it, that chair is kind of off to the side and, you know, it's this very glittering 18th century salon and it's, you know, that chair is competing with Marie Antoinette's dog bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's... it's Personal favorite of mine. Personal favorite yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so it's not always... The thing that gets you going is not always the thing that historically or art historically curatorially is the most important thing. And so I think you should allow yourself that, that for whatever reason, you know, it's, it's, it's just a kind of dating. You just have to find the thing that gets you going. And then that's perfectly valid to sit with that for a while. And then you sort of understand why you like it. And I think that act of looking, no one teaches people to do that, to kind of look at the edges and sort of ask questions of a work of art. We, we, we forget to um, explain that to people. Instead, we like to tell them where it was made and how it was made and who made it and where it was. And those are all important things. And that scholarship is very um, critical to understanding the object, but that initial connection um, should come first. I always thought about this, Carolyn and I have talked about this 
know, we teach literature, we study literature in college and graduate school, this initial wounding of being spoken to by a text when you read something and it pricks you or there's something that stays with you that a lot of scholarship actually buries or doesn't really acknowledge to say, why did this text speak to you in the beginning, in the first time? Mm -hmm. And then you try to do all this work and you're learning an enormous amount and you may actually learn that you misunderstood something even, but something in there spoke to you. And so I think this is really important to preserve that for people. Yeah. But I love this hour, Christine. I really feel like it was like the nicest hour I've spent this week. I feel like I was in a museum with you. You and me both. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so That's nice. Great. I've completely forgotten about nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we could do at least that for you during this hour, then... <laughs> More power to all of us. That's great. Well, no, it's been wonderful. And yeah, it really, like your book, you've, um, you've brought us into a, a richer world. And, um, and it was a treat and a privilege. So thank you for doing this. And I love that you're doing this. It's a great idea. Thank okay, you so much. And come back as the chair. We want the chairs answered. Come back as the chair. The chair craving the child crawling on the arm. I mean, yeah. I can give you, yeah, exactly. I have the answers right away. I mean... Oh my God. Yeah. No, we'll definitely do an episode with the chair. Uli discouraged me. I wanted to do, I have four dogs and I wanted to do this questionnaire from the point of view of each of my four dogs, but that's four <laughs> hours that nobody but me would care about. Uh, and yet we'll break the, the ice with the chair. We'll break the ice with the chair and then you can move to the dog. <laughs> I think the chair is a better candidate. Uh, anyway, thank you very thank much, you. Christine. Stay thank well. You. Bye. Bye. Bye.